for you this year? What does God have for you this year? And I'm sure that there are many different things that we might imagine because not all of us are in the same stage in life and not all of us have the same path or the same kind of calling or job or the same family responsibilities. But I know that there is one thing, without a doubt, that God would love for us to have in this year, and that is to have greater faith. I know that you probably have goals that perhaps correspond to your health this year or things that you want to add in. Maybe you've decided you're going to spend time reading the Bible, try and make it through in a year or change your prayer life or try and pick up some sort of exercise or let go of some things that have been troubling you. But if God wants us to have faith, and I know he does, that will affect every area of our life. But what does it even mean to have greater faith? What does it even mean to have greater faith? I remember hearing uh, Dr. Lee Robertson. He would come and preach at the graduation ceremony at the college that I had the privilege of attending and got to teach at down at Crown. And he would come and he would preach, and it would always be like 10 or 15 minutes. Because he was in his 90s when he was doing that. He was preaching until he was 95 and uh, went home to be with the Lord when he was 97. And, and he would say this all the time, have faith in God, have faith in God. And I, I thought I knew what he meant then. But as time has gone on, I started to realize how much more he must have meant by it. There's a number of questions that were raised in my mind when I was looking over our passage for tonight. We're going to be in Acts chapter 3. And we're going to be continuing our journey through the book of Acts as we look at the acts of the Lord Jesus Christ continuing in the person of the Holy Spirit through his apostles. Some of the questions that this passage arranged for me and, or raised up in my mind were, would I allow God to rearrange my busy schedule in order for his work to go forward? And I want to say yes, but how many times have I been guilty of being so busy? And, and does anybody have too much time? You may have too much time, but just wait a little minute. Uh, wait a minute or two. Wait a little bit. It'll, it'll be gone as a busy season comes to, into your path. What about, would I ever take credit for something that God did through me? Would I take credit for it instead of giving the credit to the Lord? Would I be spiritually aware enough to recognize that God is doing something in a moment? That he's doing something and something unusual has happened and, and a divine appointment is upon me? Do I have the faith that I say I have, that I desire to have? I think it's good when we read the Word of God and it challenges us and it brings us these questions. And that's, that's what a good time in the Word is, is when we have an encounter with God. So let's see what brought all these questions to my mind. And maybe that will be brought to your mind as we look in Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse number 11. The Word of God says this, And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John... All the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that you'd bless our time as we gather together in your word. Give me clarity of thought and speech, and uh, may you be glorified in what happens now. In Jesus' name, amen. This time period in the book of Acts is after the Lord Jesus Christ has died on the cross, was buried, and rose again from the grave. After the 40 days he spent uh, appearing and spending time with his disciples, and after he arose into heaven, after he ascended into heaven. And so now the Holy Spirit has come upon the early church. 
beginning with uh, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, now considered apostles because they've gone from followers to sent ones. And there's other people that have been saved through the preaching that Peter did in Acts chapter 2 through the book, uh, through the, uh, the sermon at Pentecost. And so now we have Peter and John heading into the temple. I want you to know that it was not unusual for them to go into the temple. This is where, when you were in Jerusalem, you went to worship. And to us, we might think it's unusual. Well, why would Peter and John, after they had become Christians, why would they still have anything to do with going into the Jewish temple? And the answer is that Christianity is not some replacement or something different than Old Testament Judaism. It is the completion of it, right? It is the completion of it. It is everything that had been promised to them. And so they were going to the Jewish temple to worship their Jewish Messiah as faithful Jewish believers. And so they were headed in there. And if you recall, when Pastor Steve dealt with this passage back a couple of weeks ago, he met, uh, Peter and John met, a man who was begging. He was sat daily outside of the, one of the gates that lead into the temple. There were many gates that could bring you in onto the grounds of the temple. And he was there every day asking alms from people. It was a common thing that if you were disabled, if there was something wrong where you could not work, they didn't have social programs in order to help you. They didn't have jobs that were easily accessible. You ended up most of the time becoming a beggar. And so he was a beggar. He couldn't walk. He was lame, had no use of his legs. And he turned and he looked upon Peter and John as they were walking in. And he asked them some money, as he did with just about everybody that passed his spot. And Peter fixed his eyes on him and says, I don't have gold and silver for you, but what I do have, I'll give to you. And he said, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And the man immediately in that moment received the power and the strength in his legs to stand up. And he didn't just stand up, he was leaping and he was so excited. And Peter and John continued on in their way into the temple and the man went in with them. He wouldn't leave him alone. And we find him now embracing them and holding on to them inside of Solomon's porch, one of the large locations inside of the temple where many people were gathered. And that's where we are in verse 11. It says, and as the lame man, which was healed, held Peter and John, he was literally holding on to them. He was so excited and he was making such a fuss and he was praising God now that his life had changed. I mean, think about that for a second. Here is a man who had to every day be set probably by a family member or some neighbor in a place to beg. He couldn't have the dignity of, of a hard day's work. There was nothing that he could contribute. His life was going to be like this until he died. And now his whole life has been changed by the power of Jesus Christ. He has the ability to now live like he has longed for for so long. And he wasn't very quiet about it. He wasn't very quiet about it. And so the lame man, which was healed, held Peter and John. All the people ran together to them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. Now, a crowd formed. The people that were there at the temple, in other parts of the temple, uh, in the other courts, perhaps heard this going on. And this man is shouting and leaping, and it's just so unusual. And as they get closer, they're probably asking themselves, wait a minute, doesn't that guy look familiar? Who do you think that guy is? Is that the, the man? No, he's leaping. It couldn't be the lame man that was always set by that one gate that was always at. Couldn't be him. But as they got closer still, they're, wait a minute, that, that is him. What is going on? And this man is creating such a big scene. Now, I don't know exactly why Peter and John went into the temple and what they expected to find when they went in there. Probably they went there to pray. Maybe they were going to have some conversations with people about the sermons that they had preached on, on Pentecost. Who knows? But I don't think that they expected this. I don't think that they expected that they were going to see a man healed and a huge crowd was going to gather like that. But when they did see it, they took advantage of the opportunity that the Lord had provided for them. Verse number 12 says, And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we have made this man to walk? He saw how they looked at Peter and John. He saw how they were looking at them and they were amazed. They were impressed. When it says that they earnestly looked on them, they couldn't take their eyes off of them. That's what that means. They could not take their eyes off of Peter and John. This crowd that got together were looking at them as though they were something amazing. And they were amazed because they realized that this lame man had been made to walk. 
And when the people started thinking that they were something special, Peter realized that this was the perfect opportunity not to get glory for himself and not talk about, yeah, I am pretty good at that healing thing. No, he brought it all the way back to the Lord. And here's what he said. He says, why do you think that we did this? Why do you think that, that, that we, by our own power or our own holiness, caused this to happen? Friends, there is never going to be a work of God that is completed, whether small or large, that has lasting fruit that will ever be done by our power or our holiness. And it will never be by the arm of the flesh. It will always be by the power of the Spirit as God works through us. It will always be of the Lord. It will be His power and His holiness that ever accomplishes anything. It's a great shame that so many people think that they have accomplished things and they take the glory that regularly belongs to the Lord. I love that here Peter was observant enough, and I love it when people are observant enough today to realize this conversation that we're having right now, this situation that has happened, this is bizarre. God must be doing something. Why am I having this conversation? Why did this person just come up and start chatting with me? Why did I get stuck next to them? Why did I sit next to them on the plane? Why did I end up in this waiting room with these people around me? Why did, when you start to look at God working in your circumstances to bring you to the right people, the right place at the right time, when that happens, you become aware of it. And the Lord, without a doubt, is doing that at this very moment. You know, people often have their eyes on men when they ought to have their eyes on the Lord. People oftentimes have their eyes on men and women when they have their, should have their eyes on the Lord. Have you ever had somebody in your life, maybe a, a parent, maybe a grandparent, maybe a pastor, maybe a, a godly friend or a Sunday school teacher or somebody like that, that had a huge impact on you and you, you just, your eyes were on that person. And you thought, what a godly person, what an amazing person. Look at, look at what they've done, look at how God has worked in their life, how, look how they've helped me, and, and your eyes were fixed on that person. And then, as you got to know them better, you started to realize that they're not everything you thought they were. I don't know if it's ever happened to you, but it happened to me. I was serving down at um, Temple Baptist Church in uh, Powell, Tennessee, as one of the assistant pastors down there. And Dr. Clarence Sexton has been down there for a number of years as the pastor there. And wonderful guy. What an opportunity to work with him. But I eventually got closer and closer to him through my time there. And I saw the gospel that he preached. And I saw that he wasn't everything that he preached. He wasn't everything that he preached. There was no great, horrible sin that he was hiding. But you know what I found out? Shocker, he's human. And he's still growing. And he still lets his flesh run away with him. And he still has times when he regrets things that he's said. And I got really bent out of shape when I realized he wasn't everything he preached. By the way, no preacher is everything that he preaches. Because if he's worth anything, he preaches the word of God. And the only person that measures up is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if he's not Jesus Christ, he's not going to measure up. And you know what ended up happening? I got bitter towards him. And I, I stopped being able to hear what he was saying when he was preaching. It went on for a few months where I'm like, yeah, but you did that. <laughs> yeah, and then, but what about this? And then you know what happened? Another godly man noticed, I have no idea how he even noticed it because I never said anything about it, but he noticed that there was something off. And he just said it just like this. He's like, you know, when you're bitter against somebody, you can't hear what they have to say when they preach to you. And I'm like, what how did you know? You know what ended up happening? My eyes were on a man instead of on God. My eyes were on a man instead of on God, and I let that ruin my spirit. And by God's grace and his conviction, I praise his name, that, that I could keep my eyes where they ought to have been. No great work of God will ever be done by our holiness or our power. In verse 13 Peter continues and says, The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son, Jesus. What he did was he walked in and said, You're all amazed that we exercise this power, that we have this thing that happened, but I want you to know this is the same power, these are the same miracles, this is the same access that we've always had for those that have truly put their faith and trust in God. This is the God of Abraham. This is the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. 
This isn't some new thing or some different thing than what you've been expected before. This is the God of the Old Testament. This is God, our Father, the God of our fathers. That's a very important point because eventually the Christians will no longer be welcome in the temple. Persecution will start. They'll be unable to meet there. But right now, they were moving forward as though this was the most natural thing that there could be is that God would send his son to be the Messiah. And even here, he calls Jesus the son of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By the way, if you're not familiar with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were very important people in the mind of Jewish followers. They, they were some of the, the cornerstones, Moses being another one, and they would look back to these great people, to their teachings, to the things that they did. They would appeal to them for authority. And so Peter's saying that's exactly who we're talking about and about his son, Jesus. Now, when we think of the son, we oftentimes think that the son is less than the father. We think that the son is less than the father because how, how could he measure up? So when the Greeks and the Romans would talk about gods with a little g, oftentimes, like Hercules and others, they would be the sons or the children of the gods, and they wouldn't quite be as strong as the gods themselves, but they, they were stronger than normal humans, right? That's sort of the mindset that was around the Greeks, but not so with the Hebrews. They would have seen it more as a matter of lineage. They would have seen the connection saying that the son is made of the same stuff that the father is. The son continues on the same line of the father. And so by here calling Jesus God's son, he's not saying that he was anything less than God himself. That's exactly what Peter was saying. Peter was saying Jesus Christ, the son of God, the Messiah, is truly divine. And he wasn't batting an eye about that at all. He wasn't scared at all to say that inside of the temple. He wanted them to know who this is. He continues on, though, in that verse, not, again, scared to say what needs to be said. He said, but he glorified his son, Jesus, whom ye delivered up. You betrayed him. He's talking to them as the whole group, as the, the whole nation of Israel, right? They had the legitimate offer of Christ to come to set up his kingdom, to rule over them. But as a nation, they denied him. But also as individuals, they denied him. As individuals, they said, we don't have any king but Caesar. And they were moved by their unbelieving leaders to join in the chant to take Jesus' life. In fact, they handed him over to Pontius Pilate that we'll hear about. It says, and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. You know what he's saying here is that God's people that have been waiting for God's promise to be fulfilled through God's Messiah took the Messiah who is the Son of God and gave him over to our enemies. There is no greater betrayal. Do you know why the, the tax collectors, the, the publicans, were looked at as so rotten in Jewish culture during the time of Christ? Because who were they collecting taxes for? They were collecting taxes for the Romans. They were collecting taxes for the oppressors. You see, the Jewish people had this idea that they were God's chosen people, and they were. But what they missed was because they had moved away from true faith in God, because at times they refused to repent, God allowed them to be captured by their enemies. And they thought that they should not have anyone to rule over them. But because of the captivity and because of their unwillingness to listen to God and his prophets, they were ruled over, sometimes by the... the Babylonians or the Chaldeans, the, the Medes and Persians, the Assyrians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. And they thought they should be free because they were God's chosen people. And so they hated the Romans. They called them dogs. They were Gentiles. They were unclean. They, they weren't fit to rule over them. Right? This would have been a very unusual thing for a Gentile to, to get along with a Jewish person. There was usually a lot of friction there. And yet here were Jewish people that collected money on behalf of Rome. So now you're paying money to those people that are oppressing us. That's why publicans are always identified with sinners. Because they were getting rich by, yes, extorting the people, but also collecting money for the enemy occupying force. Well, even worse than that, they took the Jewish Messiah and handed him over to their enemies. That's the kind of betrayal that we're looked at. Even when Pilate wanted to let him go... They moved against Pilate, the leaders wanting him gone. Verse 14, but ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. Don't forget who Jesus is. He is the Holy One. 
He is God in the flesh. He was sinless. He never did anything wrong. And he was the just, the righteous one, the one who did everything right. That's the one that you betrayed. And do you know who you chose instead? A murderer. You say, when did they choose a murderer instead? We won't go back because of time and look at the passage, but on Passover, there was a habit where the Roman official would get up and say, hey, if you want a prisoner pardoned that we have in custody right now, that is something that we do as sort of a, a gift, as a habit, as a cell, part of your celebration during this time of year. And they're like, we've got locked up right now Jesus, who's supposedly the Messiah and the king of the Jews. And then we also got Barabbas, who's a murderer who's a terrible person. And instead of asking for Jesus to be released, they asked for Barabbas to be released because they did not remember who this is that's making these decisions that's whipping up the people. It was the non-believing religious elite that were threatened by Jesus, that were always after Jesus, trying to get him messed up in his words and get him in trouble. And they finally did take him into custody that night through betrayal when Judas betrayed him in the garden. They found out where he was. They took him when there was no one around to protect him, when no one would see him. And that's when they delivered him unto the Romans. So they wanted a murderer instead of the Son of God, the Holy One and the just. Verse 15, and killed the prince of life. Can you imagine the prince of life? It says that in Jesus was life. And that life was the light of men. He was himself the creator. Nothing was made. Look, look with me in John chapter 1, would you? I don't have this in the slides, but look over with me in John chapter 1. Look at everything that we find in Jesus Christ and who it is that they sadly denied. In John chapter 1, in verse number 1. You'll have to look in your Bibles because this isn't in the slides. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and darkness comprehended it not. Skip down to verse 11. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Look at verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You say, who would deny such a savior? Who would deny such a king, such a priest, such a creator, such a prince of life? Well, there's a problem when Jesus is recognized as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You know what the problem is? Then he's also king of us. He's also Lord of us. And people will go to great lengths, great lengths, to try and justify in their mind why they don't have to listen to God. You ever notice somebody doing that? Uh, I, <laughs> I had the privilege of working with a number of refugees and international students when I lived in Knoxville. And one of the things that always would happen with the atheist scientists is we get to this point in sharing the gospel with them when they would say things like, well, I still have questions. I don't, I don't, I'm not ready to make a decision yet. I still have questions. I'm not sure. I still have questions. And then my next question to them would be, well, what are your questions? What things don't you understand? What are you still waiting to hear? And you know what the answer was? They didn't have any questions left. They understood exactly what the gospel meant. They understood that there was a creator God who made them, who loved them, who only did right, but by right of creation, by right of being who he is, had ownership over them, rulership over them, and they didn't want that because they didn't want to live the way that God said that they should live. And I think that all of us, if we were honest, at some point in time have tried to justify why either God didn't say that or that's just some man's idea or uh, he's not real so I don't have to listen to him. They'll come up with all sorts of crazy things so that God is not in authority over their lives. That is a common occurrence. And they took the prince of life and they put him to death. It continues on back in Acts chapter 3. It says, And killed the prince of life, verse 15, whom God raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. By the way, though you betrayed him, though you denied him, 
Though you were complicit in the death that he died, God raised him from the dead. This story isn't over. This isn't him just telling them about everything that they did wrong. He's saying, though you went to all of this length to try and destroy him, God said no because he's the son of God. And though he was dead, God raised him up and we are witnesses. You know what they're saying when they say we are witnesses? We saw it. We saw the resurrection. We know it's true. We publicly watched him die and then we were there when he showed up in the midst of the room. We saw him with our own eyes. We were there when when the, the women came and ran to us from the garden tomb, the holy women that had seen the Lord Jesus and told us. And we didn't believe at first, but then Jesus showed up himself. And then we believed. Then we believed. We are witnesses of these things. They're saying this wasn't some idea we came up with. We actually saw it. We beheld. We are eyewitnesses of what happened. Verse 16. And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong. He said, you know how this happened? This didn't happen because of us. It happened because of the power and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not just the power of a name, as though Jesus' name is some sort of magic word. No, it was faith in his name. And when you think about a name in the Bible sense, it's more than just the sounds that we use to get someone's attention. How many of you were given a name by your parents that had a meaning to it? Any of you were given a name that had a meaning to it? My parents had a friend named Bill, whose real name was William, and so I think that's why I ended up that way. It wasn't because there was some great meaning in the name. It's because they had a friend named Bill, and then I got named Bill. Nothing wrong with that. But when you think about names in the Bible and it starts talking about the name of God, that is encompassing the whole person, their very nature, their character, who they are and what they're like, their authority, their power. Everything is wrapped up inside of that name. And so when they're talking about faith in the name of Jesus, it's not some empty word or just some sounds that they're stating. It's because of their conviction that Jesus is who he says he is, that he will keep the promises that he said he will. Because Jesus is the one who told them that they will be able to heal people that are sick and to cast out demons and all of the things that were going to be used as proof, as evidence, as signs that this message was the truth. Because they didn't have a completed Bible yet. And there were all sorts of people with all sorts of different religious ideas out there. Even among the Jewish people, there were divisions about this rabbi teaches this and that rabbi teaches that. How are they going to know that when they come talking about Jesus, that it's real? The answer will be is that it came in power, not just in word, but in power. There were lots of different gods, but they weren't doing the things that Peter and John were doing in the name of their God. There were lots of different religions and sects, but none of them were doing the things that Christians were doing. And so he said it was faith in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't believe it was this man's faith in Jesus Christ. I believe it was Peter's faith in the name of Jesus Christ. I don't think this man totally understood what was going on. Because here's the interaction. Peter's walking into the temple. John's with him. The guy asks for money. Peter says, gold and silver have I none, but that which I have I give thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. He gets healed. Peter and John keep walking into the temple, and the guy's just holding on to him, leaping the whole way, praising God. I don't think they had a time to disciple him and all the truth of what happened with Jesus Christ or to reason with him out of the Old Testament. I don't think, but I think that Peter was wholeheartedly convinced. The same Peter that denied... Jesus three times the night he was taken. That same Peter that was embarrassed when he saw the risen Christ and Jesus asked him again and again, do you really love me? Something had happened in Peter's life and he had become thoroughly convinced. And because of that, he had faith in Jesus Christ. He had faith in Jesus Christ. And that's how the man was healed. He says, whom ye see and know. He's saying, listen, this isn't a trick. You know this guy. He's been here daily, forever. You saw us heal him. Some of the crowd didn't see, but a lot of the crowd did see. People going in and out all the time, and the man leaps up and starts causing a scene. They're going to recognize what happened. This man's life was changed, and there was no way to explain it other than the power of Jesus Christ. People didn't randomly get healed all the time, just so you know. People that were lame for their whole life or were lame afterwards, some accident perhaps happened, they didn't recover. 
This isn't some unusual circumstance where these things happened all the time. If anything, their medicine and their ability to heal things were so far less than us that this would have been all the more amazing that it happened. Verse number 17. Actually, let me finish up in verse 16. It says, By him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Everyone saw it. You can't deny it. And he has perfect soundness. You know what that means? That when God chose to work, he healed him completely. He wasn't limping. He didn't have any weakness in his legs. He didn't have inflammation in his joints from all of that time of not moving around. He was healed completely to perfect soundness, perfectly whole and done in the presence of everybody. That is how people get convinced of God's power. Is the power of God being poured into a situation in which someone's life has changed and there is no other way to explain it. Verse 17, And now, brethren, I wot that ye, that through ignorance ye did it, as did your rulers. You all didn't fully understand who Jesus was. That's what Peter's saying. You didn't understand who you were dealing with. You thought perhaps he was some usurper. You thought perhaps he was a false messiah. You thought perhaps he was some blasphemer. You thought perhaps he was a threat to your political power. But I want you to know, we understand that you didn't know it and that your rulers didn't know it. Because if they had heard, if they had been willing to see, they wouldn't have done the things that they had done. They didn't understand who Jesus Christ truly was. And that doesn't excuse them from their sin of betraying him. And that doesn't excuse them from their sin of denying him. But do you know what it does? God, in his mercy, sent Peter and John to give them another chance that they might hear the gospel again. That's what the Lord did for him. Did God owe these people who saw Jesus ride in on the colt during that week of Passover, when they saw him ride in and were crying Hosanna, and when they saw him preach and teach in the temple, when they saw the people healed, when they, do they deserve something more when they've had a visitation by Christ himself? Do they deserve a second chance? No. Do sinners even deserve a first chance? It's salvation. The answer is no, because sinners like you and I, whenever we do something that God says is wrong and we do it anyway, and whenever we don't do the good things that God asks us to do, that's, that's sin. And we're committing a criminal act on a cosmic level. There's no one worse that you could sin against than the perfect God creator that has decided what is true and false and right and wrong, what ought to be done, ought not to be done. We've committed the worst crime that's out there, cosmic treason. So we don't deserve any kind of forgiveness. And yet, Jesus Christ made a way so that we could be forgiven. And then sent people to tell us how we could be saved. Why? Because he loves us. And not because we are good, but because he is good. Not because we deserve mercy, but because he is merciful. Verse number 17. Let's move on to verse 18. But those things which God before hath showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. And this is the verse we'll stop in tonight. You know what he's saying? The Old Testament told us that the Savior would be a suffering Savior. Look in Isaiah chapter 53. You know, some of the people that I like to listen to, whether it's about news or politics or culture and things like that, there's there's a Jewish man that I listen to who's very conservative, and um, he, he is definitely not a Messianic Jew. He is definitely not a Messianic Jew. He doesn't believe in a suffering Savior. He believes that when the Messiah comes and that he will still come, he believes that he's going to be a governmental deliverer. He's going to be something greater than what Jesus Christ is. And he says that there's nothing in the Old Testament that makes me think that there needs to be a, a Savior that would suffer like Jesus suffered. Well, Isaiah chapter 53, which is often a chapter that you won't find many Jewish people reading and looking to because of the striking similarities with Christ, it says this in verse number 3. Isaiah 53 in verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely... He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. 
But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. I want you to think for a moment about this being written 700 years before the birth of Christ and how he would suffer. And Peter is calling back to this and other passages that if we had time, we could look up in the Old Testament about how Jesus Christ would suffer, who he'd be, how he would die, and what he would be purchasing by his death, which is the forgiveness of sins for every man, woman, boy, and girl. And that is what Peter calls back to. He says, all of that that was told in the Old Testament, all of it has come to pass. And so as we look next week, we'll talk about the call to repentance after he so eloquently displayed the gospel here. Let's look at some points of application as we close. First off, let's keep our eyes on God and not on men. Let's keep our eyes on God and not on men. The crowd was staring at Peter and John as though they were the source of the miracle. Peter immediately denied it. He said, it's not our power, it's not our holiness. It's easy to admire people, but they will always eventually let you down. If you put them in the place of God, you will be discouraged. You will be discouraged because just like you and I, though they may be saved sinners, they're still sinners. And so we have to be so careful as to not put somebody on a pedestal that doesn't belong there. Our eyes should be on the Lord. We need to put our expectation on the Lord. You may find fault with Jesus' followers, but you'll never find any fault with Jesus Christ. People get shipwrecked because their eyes are in the wrong place. It's always horrible and grievous when somebody who was a leader in a church or perhaps a preacher even, somebody who was a big name, when you find out that they weren't everything that they were supposed to be or that they were far from what they were supposed to be. And they had some sort of great moral failing in their life. And there's no need to call out people. I'm sure that if you've been around for any length of time, you've thought of people that might fit into that category. And it's made a number of people give up on God. But for you and I, let's not set ourselves up for that. Let's keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus. So if someone that we love and admire falls, if they give in to sin, it won't be something that makes us say, well... Man, if they couldn't do it, I can't do it. I'm quitting. Let's keep our eyes where they belong. We should be amazed and in awe of God. We should always think about, look at what God is doing through that person. Let's also, like Peter and John did, not take any glory that deserves to be given to God. I remember one time early on in my Christian life, my mom came down to visit me in Columbus when I was a student down at Ohio State and I was attending the North Columbus Baptist Church, and she came with me to a church service. And there was a lady who sang, and she sang beautifully. She had sort of an opera sound to her singing. You could tell that she was classically trained, and she sang really, really well. And my mom went up and made a big deal about it after church. And it's like, oh, your singing was so beautiful. And the woman just kept saying, amen, amen. And my mom's afterward, she's like, I kept trying to talk with that lady, and all she said was amen. She's like, what's that all about? Well, the answer is she was trying in her best attempt to give glory to God and not to say, well, thanks, I, I've trained really hard because there's nothing that I have or any of you have that we did not receive. And so we have nothing to boast about. All of the glory goes to God who gave it to us. 
If he's given you a sharp mind and the ability to gain wealth, the ability to, to speak or to teach or to serve or to build or to think through problems, to organize, all of that should go to, to God's glory. So you may, you may notice if somebody comes up and says something to me and about like, oh, that was a great sermon or the Lord really used that. I'll usually say two things. First of all, praise God and then thank you, right? The first glory goes to God, but I don't want to be the kind of person that, you know, is obnoxious about it. And so I want to thank them for taking the time to be a blessing. And I, I recommend that's a great way to do it. Praise God. Thank you. you know, I'm glad it was a blessing to you, whatever that might have been. Keep your eyes on God, not on men. Second of all, let's take advantage of these divine appointments. Peter and John headed into the temple to worship. They see an opportunity to, to do good. They take it. And I don't know that they expected an evangelistic rally to break out right afterwards. Right? I'm sure that they loved that it did. But can you imagine if they're just like, shh, shh, we're here to worship. You're causing a scene. We had these plans today to go in to pray all day, and, and, and now you've caused this trouble, lame guy. No, Peter saw the opportunity and immediately started talking with the crowd about Christ. When it did happen, they were ready and willing to take advantage of it. They had their own plans, but God changed it. We need to be aware of when unusual circumstances pop up in our day. You know, what does unusual circumstances look like? Think, think about that for a second. But I can think of specific times when somebody has asked me a question that I, I, didn't, I didn't expect or just showed up at a place I didn't expect. Um, I don't always wear a suit everywhere I go, but I always try and look like if I told you I was a pastor that you would believe me, right? I always try and at least be dressed up enough. And I remember I was visiting in a suit one time and uh, I was at the hospital and I was leaving the hospital and I was walking through the lobby and a young man came up to me as I was leaving. He's like, are you a pastor? You know, I guess he guessed it. And he was going through something awful. His fiance was dying. He was here in town visiting her and her family. Her family hated him, hated him. I don't know why, but they did. And so here he was with his fiance. He just came to visit. She got very sick and she did end up dying. And you know what God did? God put me there to help that young man go through the death and the funeral and the accommodations because as soon as she was done, that family threw him out. He had no place to go. And he was from Philadelphia and here he was in Knoxville at that time. And I, I could have just been, listen, I've got other visits to make today. I'm busy. But God got my attention and by God's grace, this time I listened. <laughs> I listened. That doesn't always happen, but it did happen that time. We need to be aware enough to see God working, to expect him to work, to pray and to seek after souls and opportunities. And it doesn't always have to be something so unusual and outlandish and amazing that we say, wow, what a divine opportunity. It could be that you get sat next to somebody, that you have a server at a restaurant and you can give her a gospel tract and you can speak to her. Or a neighbor comes over and says something and you turn the conversation towards the spirit of God. Share the gospel, even the hard parts. He was willing to do that. So there are bizarre things that happen sometimes, but even the things that aren't bizarre, if God will give us the understanding, we need to pay attention and take advantage of those things. Lastly, to have faith in God. That's the third part, to have faith in God. Peter declared that faith in the name of Jesus healed this lame man. This is Jesus' person, his authority, his power, his character, his nature, all of it. When you and I pray, because the gift of healing isn't given to us in the same way it was given to the apostles, the miracles that they did were for that time to prove that the message of the gospel was true, and those things ceased and faded away as we had the completed word of God available. It's a whole different question for a different time. But as that happens, so today, how do we see miracles happen? How do we see people's lives changed? Well, we pray. Does God still do miracles? Absolutely. He just doesn't always select a single human agent and say that person has the ability by laying on of hands and faith to see somebody healed. But I've prayed for people and seen them healed before. I bet you have too. I bet you prayed for situations that seemed hopeless and God answered. But there have been many prayers that I have offered up and I expected nothing to happen. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but have you ever prayed a prayer and didn't expect it to come to pass? It's like you just threw it out there because like, man, wouldn't that be nice? And you're just kind of dreaming about it. And you didn't really think it would come. 
You didn't think God would do it. You didn't think God would do it for you because you're not really good enough for him to do that. You didn't think he was willing to or he was committed enough to do it. But you know, God does respond to prayer. He does things based on faithful prayers, believing prayers that he would not otherwise do had the prayers not been offered up. You know what shows faithlessness? And I'm convicted by this because so many times I rush into action. Prayerlessness. Prayerlessness means that we don't have the kind of faith we're supposed to have. If we had the kind of faith we were supposed to have when we ran into trouble, when we ran into a problem, when we had a worry, a concern, anxiety, a crisis, a crossroads, something like that, the first place we would go would be to God in prayer if we had faith. If we believed that he would really change things, that's where we would go first. Do you know where we usually go or when we usually go to God? When we've run out of options. Uh, Jim and I and Pastor Steve will get back here and pray before the morning services on Sundays. And we'll chat a little bit first and share prayer requests. And then we'll jokingly say, well, we better pray. And one of us will say, has it really come to that? Because unfortunately, there are times when that's where our spirituality is. That's the last thing we pray. The last thing we do is pray. You know, we do all the other stuff first. And when that doesn't work, what does that mean? We don't really have the faith that we say we have if we're prayerless. Because either we think it's not going to happen. God can't do it. Or he won't do it for me, which means we're questioning his word. We're not believing him. And that's what faith is. It's trust and believing. How do you build faith? How do you build faith? Well, specific prayer and seeing the answers to specific prayer will build your faith. When you see God work and you say, that was God, you'll get excited about it. And you'll start to believe that God can. And maybe he will again. And that will continue to grow. And when you spend time in God's word and you see how people prayed and God answered and how people were in need and God provided, you see that stuff happen in scripture, it's going to build your faith, make you more likely to ask and to believe. When other people share testimonies about how God has come through for them, it'll increase your faith. Whether that's a personal testimony, somebody you know says, hey, I just want you to know this weird thing was happening. I prayed about it and God took care of it. Or reading biographies of great Christians who've gone on before us. There's nothing that increases my prayer life more than when I read through George Mueller's autobiography. The man prayed for stuff and it just happened. It was almost like it's real. And when I read that and I realized that this is not a story, this is something really that happened, it's like, well, I'm going to pray. If we realize what's available to us. It's connected to our faith in God. Meditating, thinking, reflecting on God's goodness and power and commitment. I want you, no matter what it is that you are hoping to see God do in your life this year, that you ask him to give you greater faith, to help your unbelief. You know, there's this prayer where Jesus is speaking with someone and the man's answer, because he's worried that he doesn't have enough faith to see Jesus do a great work that's important to him, he says, Lord, I believe, but help thou mine unbelief. He's like, I got some, but I don't got enough. I've got some faith, but I don't got enough faith. And he's saying, help thou mine unbelief. That's a great prayer. Asking the Lord to build us up. A few questions before we, we close tonight. Why is it so easy? Why is it so easy to get our eyes on men instead of on God? Tony? Yeah. Because men are here. Men, women, people that have influenced us, they're actually right in front of us. It's a whole lot easier to see them. Why else? Why else is it easy to get our eyes on men instead of on God? Yes, Nancy? Stop praying and stop believing. Yeah, we stop praying, and so we stop believing. Tony? Mm, failure to believe what you can't see. You ever heard seeing is believing? Well, you can see people, but you, you can't see God. Not in the same way. Not in the same way. How do we take glory that belongs to God? In what ways do we take the credit 
when the credit should go to God. How does that happen? Pride. Yeah, pride. That's one of the reasons why it happens, for sure. How else? What's that? Unbelief. If we don't believe that God's behind it, then we were behind it. Isn't it wild that when God was taking the children of Israel in the Old Testament out of slavery in Egypt and brought them into the Promised Land, he warned them not to forget him and to get this weird idea that they had somehow won all the battles by their strength, and then they went and forgot him and thought that they won all the battles by their own strength? Isn't that wild? It's not that wild, though, because it's easy for us to forget, isn't it? It's easy for us to forget. What does a life of faith look like? as opposed to a life without faith. Think of a believer. A believer who has faith, how does he or she deal with crisis or crossroads? Tony? Prayer. Prayer. Dave? Prayer. How does somebody who doesn't have faith deal with those things? Why pray when you can worry? Yeah, <laughs> why pray when you can worry? Isn't that something? That's so true. How else are those two ways of living different? Having faith versus not. Okay? I have no faith, I get stressed out. Yes, stress. When we have no faith, we feel like it's up to us. And then we look at us and we measure us against the problem and we say, we are but grasshoppers in their sight. We're too small. We can't do that. Absolutely. I've been there. What else? What, is it, what are the differences between a life of faith and a life without it? Yeah, Freddie? Mm. Blame others and get angry instead of having faith in God, believing that he's working through it. Ben? Hmm. Mm. Yeah, when it's just you without faith, then it's up to, then all you got is the money in your bank account, the people you happen to know, the favors that are offered, offered to you, the connections that you have, the way that you can scheme things out. But when it's God, it's infinite. It's infinite, the resources that are available to us. It's infinite. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us? As though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that in this time you would help us to have greater faith, that we might seek it, that we might ask for it, that we might take time to meditate on you, to realize your greatness, so that we have greater faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before you leave, if you don't have a prayer sheet... Uh, I'd like you to grab one of those just to make a few notes on people in our congregation, a few quick prayer requests. If you don't have them, would you slip your hand up and we'll make sure to get one to you? Harold's got some in the back that he's handing out if you don't have one.